This episode of the podcast series for the fourth edition of Wilmot Smith on Construction Contracts considers Chapter 3, Extra Contractual Claims, Unjust Enrichment, edited by Frederick Wilmot Smith. Hello, Fred. Hi, Paul. Uh, I'm uh, glad you'd come and have a ch- talk to us about the um, Chapter 3, which is your the, your sole work product, which we're very pleased to have in the book and gives the book uh, an, an extra academic respectability. Before we talk about it, perhaps you could just tell those who are listening a little bit about you. You're now a barrister in Brick Court Chambers, but having been at All Souls Oxford, just, just give us a sort of thumbnail sketch of Fred Wilmot Smith. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me on. I was an academic in Oxford for about 10 years, a, a bit under most of the time within All Souls College, and I remain a fellow of All Souls College there. I then moved across to the bar a few years ago and have been practising in Brick Court since. Well, of course, when you were at All Souls, you had the benefit of the nicest library in the world, the Codrington, which for me was a a marvellous experience when I was doing my BCL. No longer, I should say, called the Codrington Library. It's now the Library at All Souls. Oh, how interesting. I hadn't heard that. I'm sure that's... A- this is a relatively recent change, but because Christopher Codrington himself made money from slavery, and the view was taken that naming public institutions after slavers was not something we should be propagating. So it's now the library also. Good for education for me, because I had no idea of Mr. of Mr. Codrington's history, and therefore the, the very least yeah. benefit is that I, I learn about that. Well, and did good, you have but it's, it is a wonderful library. Yeah. It is a wonderful library. Very, well very calming and very, 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 very inspirational, I found. Did you teach yes. many undergraduates? I taught some undergraduates. I taught for about four years of undergraduates. I then went to New York for a year. And at that point, I gave up all of my teaching. And when I came back, I only taught on the BCL, which is the graduate course in Oxford. It's called the Bachelor of Civil Law, and it is a master's degree in the common law. Astonishingly, I I, I did that yeah. and uh, nearly got a first, but nevertheless, not quite. The, uh, <laughs> uh, but the uh, the uh, the uh, and then you 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 came to the bar. Um, in the meantime, you'd written various books, hadn't you? That's overstating it. You're generous. I had edited a number of books, and I'd written one. But the uh, one the got quite like, a lot of the, the one got quite a lot of critical acclaim, didn't it? Uh, criticism, anyway. No, it did. <laughs> no. It, it got some nice uh, responses. Hopefully, some more still to come. But yes, that that was on uh, available in all good bookstores uh, at a discounted rate. It's called Equal Justice, and it's on the structure of legal systems or how legal systems themselves should be structured. So it does have some practical relations for things like civil procedure. And I think it's a generally interesting topic, both for lawyers and non-lawyers. But it's not the sort of thing that I think we lawyers tend to think about very much. Well, I I can't speak for you. I tend to focus on the rule before me when a practicing lawyer and how that applies. It's, It's sometimes difficult to sit back and see how it fits into a broader pattern so it was trying to do that yes and and, and the the um the juridical basis for it is very often in fact useful when you're trying to construe it and if you can see where it fits i mean for example take a um anodyne illustration part 36 if you get where part 36 fits into the into the system and the structure and you get then where where um where the part 36 rule itself fits into the approach then construing it is construing it is much easier, and also participating in discussions about development and how it should be improved as time goes on. 
I think that's exactly right. There, there's a very nice passage, and I don't know if you know The Path of the Law by Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., a favourite of Wilmot Smith Sr. There's a, a passage in it where he says, the mark of a great lawyer is something like, I'm not quoting exactly, being able to see principles in the broadest abstraction rather than the narrowest. And he gives an example of Vermont justices, where someone came before them and said their milk pail had been broken. And the Vermont justices looked through their books and could find no instances of milk pails being broken, so had to send the litigant away without a remedy. And you can see the take home from this. But I thought about this some when thinking about this book and this chapter in this book, because there is a danger sometimes in thinking too narrowly in these areas, particularly thinking this is a housing case or a bridge case or a dam case. And there's also a danger in thinking too broadly. You can't think of this just in terms of there's just a single principle that applies to everything. So you do have to um, whittle ideas, I suppose, down to their right size, not too narrow, not too um, broad, a Goldilocks standard. So you, 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 your, your, your chapter, the chapter which you've got sole responsibility for, and therefore your father and I cannot take either the credit or the blame for it, extra contractual claims, unjust enrichment. Now, you've done that chapter, I think, very kindly since the first edition. No, um, that's not quite right, actually. I did. Uh, I took over in the third edition. I'm proving the, the, the rule of advocacy. Never ask a question to which you don't know the answer. Um, and I've broken it now twice, so why not for a third time? So you then edited, edited what had been there, or did you start from scratch? It was a mix. The, uh, the previous chapter was called Quantum Merowit, and it had a, a good amount of specifically construction cases in it. And my guess is that was most of the material which people found useful and perhaps still find useful in this. It's the stuff really on the TCC heart. I gave it a slightly different structure. So I put it more within the spin of how I saw the law fitting together. That's unjust enrichment and then the particular structure within that. And I tried to keep faith with the previous uh, chapter that is by ensuring that it was construction focused with the cases and with the contemporaries exactly but while also trying to give signals to where there are broader issues that people should be aware so they weren't thinking only of bridge cases they could think of other cases that were not specific to construction but where the same principles were discussed so it was somewhere in between for example, section starting at 306, you have a, the section called the factual context, and you distinguish between anticipated contracts that fail to materialise, work done outside the scope of a contract, uh, work done under a contract subsequently repudiated, work done under a void or unenforceable contract. Now, I suspect, and again, I'm going to prove that, I shouldn't ask a question you don't know the answer to, that's categorisation that you may have brought into the third edition. I think that's correct, although I'm afraid that I don't remember. I don't no, no, want to. It, it, um, but, that, but, that, but that would fit with the general principle you're talking about, yeah. which is people talk about how do you quantify the value of work done in particular circumstances. You've got to work out what the particular circumstances are first, because until you do that, you don't know what. And you're then reading cases that purport to give a general principle, but in fact are giving a general principle to a narrow particular factual context. So you've got to have the structure there, which I think is what, what you've done. But of course, because. Uh, and of course, the, the the in inverted commas deal, close inverted commas that you did with the then editor, then sole editor, um, your father, was that you would have 
um, sole control of it, and we've benefited from that because it means that no one's tried to muck it around by adding in some clever footnote that, in fact, wouldn't fit in with the scheme of the book. I'm afraid I am precious in that regard. Yes, that you're, was a condition uh, you're, of my taking you're, over. You're, 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 not only you, not only that, I wouldn't call it precious. I call it sensible, and we were all very happy because it, on the one hand, means you have a work of scholarship. It also means you haven't got to do anything about it. So it's, <laughs> so it's a win. So it's a win-win. But between the third and the fourth editions, what were the big changes so far as you were concerned? It was, I think, more evolution than revolution in many respects, because some of the the greatest changes in unjust enrichment that took place, I think, had relatively limited impact for construction practitioners. I've tried to reflect them, but I don't think that there there were any seismic changes in the way that, for instance, in mediation, then I think there have been quite substantial changes in how that's conducted in construction. The the biggest change that I think has taken place has been, if I can put it this way, Lord Reed has stamped his authority increasingly on the subject. How president of the court now. Yeah. And in a, a number of important cases in the Supreme Court, he has changed the law. He has he overruled most notably Central Metals and the Inland Revenue Commissioners, which was the case on the restitution point, people would always cite to claim compound interest where they were claiming restitution of money. He overruled that. And the basis on which he overruled it in a case called Prudential and against Her Majesty's uh, Revenue and Customs Commissioners was of quite wide application. And it's of quite wide application to both money claims and more broadly. So it's, if I can put it in the broadest and uh, loosest terms, it has narrowed the scope of unjust enrichment in a way that I would suspect a number of uh, practitioners would find intuitively attractive and perhaps commercially so as well, because it means there's hopefully less chance of someone picking up chapter three and running a coach and horses through what they thought was a sensible position that the law had reached in a way that there's long been suspicions unjust enrichment can do. See, I think one of the beauties of Chapter Three is that you know it it it, it runs from um, page one three two through to page one five nine. It's twenty seven pages. You do get a comprehensible, readable, reliable summary of the law on the whole field. And for me, that's a real, I mean, it's a real skill to have managed to achieve. And I think that, you know, that the, the, uh, it's worth people who are interested in understanding this area, reading the whole chapter first, because getting the structure and understanding how it all fits together and the principles, and there are very few books you can do that with, because most books on unjust enrichment are just that, they're books rather than chapters. And therefore here, I think you've got the reliability of the chapter, uh, the, the reliability of the material, and it's digestible, but it's not. Um, it, 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 it doesn't aim to be esoteric. It aims to be practical, but nevertheless principled. That Have was I the got, hope. Yeah. Well, yeah. The, the hope was that this is an area that a lot of people, I think, find difficult, obscure, confusing, and it doesn't need to be so. So the aim was to try to bring some contextual analysis to it so people who are practicing this field can look at the case that they have where they know what the facts are and think well what kind of a case is this what sort of arguments are in place so that's the point that you referred to earlier and then to give them a map that allow them to see for each kind of case what sort of thing should i be thinking about Uh, but without the weight 
or the depth of a, a Goffin Jones, example, for example, which is a, a which obviously plant. which obviously fits with the whole. I mean, I, I've only been involved in the fourth edition and hope to be in the fifth edition, but that was the principle upon which the book was 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 meant to work, and you've just restated that as you would expect. But for me, here's a good illustration. Paragraph 325, the enrichment cap. Now, you then got six sentences, each with a footnote, each with a, a, an authority to, to, to justify the proposition. And in just over five lines, you have a you know clear, coherent summary of how the enrichment cap works. I put my cards on the table. I understood it much better as a matter of principle because you're getting the big picture and then being able to drill down rather than diving straight into the detail point without understanding why it matters. And I think for me, that's one of the great benefits of the chapter. Good. I'm very pleased to hear it. One thing while I remember, another addition that took place that I think is of practical importance concerns pleading of claims in this because I think... Uh, this is a thing that's still not completely settled, but how should one plead a claim in unjust enrichment and when can you, for example, succeed in a strikeout? There is a relatively recent decision of the Privy Council and Lord Burroughs, to whom we may revert uh, or come back to, called uh, Samsundar and Capital Insurance. And that is, I think, now the leading decision on pleading of claims in unjust enrichment. And it's snuck in just before you asked me for the final copy. So it is there. And it's important for what people need to plead if they're going to make good claims and of what, if someone wants to strike out a claim, they can look to. Well, it's, well I, um, I, um, I remember it sneaking in, and that was marvellous, because, um, because you'd been so efficient and got yours done early, I, 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 I clung on to your chapter because it was one that was in the bank um, and, and uh, was able then to sort of, what well, not to be worrying about. And when you decided you were going to change it at the last minute, I was both delighted, but thinking, thank goodness he's changing something that was finished several months ago, rather than <laughs> rather than just... Uh, and I mean, Lord Burroughs is going to make quite a contribution in this area to the Supreme Court, isn't he? I suspect so. I, this is... For those who don't know, Lord Burroughs was an academic for for a long time uh, in Manchester and then Oxford, and he was my colleague for many years in Ulsells. He was appointed direct to the Supreme Court a few years ago, and he was an expert and is an expert in the law of restitution generally, especially unjust enrichment. I would imagine that he will want to stick his oar in uh, in this area. Exactly what he wants to do on that and what chances he'll get time will tell. But Samsundar is an example of where he has been able to do so already. Um, there is a case going to the Supreme Court called Barton and Gwyn Jones, uh, which we will we will see whether he is on the panel and what it's to do with. But it's about uh, the contract unjust enrichment interface, which is a thing we'll come back to. That's the, the really difficult thing that most practitioners find, I think. Where does contract end? Where does unjust enrichment begin? That could become a leading decision on that, and I would expect to see Lord Burroughs writing a judgment in that. Just a quick aside about Lord Burroughs. When there was talk of an academic aid to the Supreme Court, I grandly opined that it would be Lord Burroughs. And um, then, as the process went on and time went on, changed my mind and decided it would be a different academic. And when Lord Burroughs was appointed, I grandly told him this story, which was happily corroborated by witnesses, quite senior witnesses. And uh, he still to this day wonders, apparently, what it was that he did that caused me to think that he wouldn't get it after all. 
Uh, he is, I mean, I paid Van Vimmen triple point. He's marvellous. Um, I mean, fantastic appointment. So any other changes from the book, whether involving Lord Burroughs or not? Another one that has perhaps relatively limited impact for uh, many construction practitioners, but that is important, concerns limitation. So it yeah. used to be the case that one could extend limitation, particularly for mistakes of law, under 321C of the Limitation Act by saying that you could not with reasonable diligence have discovered the mistake until the law changed. Uh, that was in a, a very important decision of the Supreme Court overturned last year. It Now, though, the, the rule is very fact-specific. So you'd have to know if you wanted to extend exactly what your facts were. Time will tell what the impact of that is. But I think that's that's one of the more important changes. The, the main one people need to be aware of, I think, is uh, investment trust companies against HMRC and Prudential against HMRC. That's the narrowing of unjust enrichment. And the, the important point, I think, on that more broadly is one of Lord Reed's central claims is that um, you can't look at the test for unjust enrichment as if it was a statute and think, well, enrichment, I know what enrichment means. What's that? At the expense of, yeah, I kind of know what that means. Injustice, yeah, it's a bit unjust or a bit not unjust. And then abracadabra, there's a remedy at the end. Lord Reed says you have to look at in it in a more fragmented way at the kind of claim that arises and see well, what are the principles that apply to that. So it does require some care, and one can't think simply because one understands the broadest elements, as they're stated, that you know what the position is. So you need to buy the book. And quite a lot of latitude is therefore given to the first, first instance judge. That could be right. I mean, certainly in, in characterising a case, then people might be unwilling to recharacterise it on appeal. But I th there is still substantial scope for people to get it wrong in terms yeah. of the kind of case that it is, I think. So I, I don't think we'll see a complete um, desiccation of appeals uh, of unjust enrichment cases. And uh, unless there's anything else that's sort of significant between the third and the fourth, can you give us a bit of a sneak preview as to what, what in the coming years for the fifth edition might end up being the, the hot topics, apart from the one obviously that you mentioned that's on its way to the Supreme Court? Yeah, I think that, that one gives a window into what I suspect will be some of the key issues, particularly for construction practitioners, the contract unjust enrichment interface. For centuries, this has been a thing that has puzzled people. One of your earlier commentators spoke about Sumter and Hedges, and that was yeah. exactly on point in that respect. There is another case called Avonwick Holdings, which the Court of Appeal is currently reserved on, and I think we'll pronounce on soon, which concerns also when and whether someone can recover in unjust enrichment when there is a valid contract between the parties. It's possible that will go to the Supreme Court as well. That shows that there is a general concern or interest in how unjust enrichment and contract interact. Uh, the most specific case of importance, I, I would guess, to, to readers is whether roughly you can use unjust enrichment to escape bad bargains. And the way that that arises in the construction contracts is context where you have caps, contractual caps. And someone tries to get around that by recharacterizing the case as an unjust enrichment case. They say either, well, I know that the, I was only going to make £50 from this, but I paid you 100 and I want the 100 back. Or they say, I know I was only going to get paid £50 for building this dam, but I've built the dam now and it's worth 100 So I want the Or it costs 75 Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Those sorts of arguments. Now, in this country... 
remarkably, the leading authority is a first instance decision of um, Mr. Justice Cook from 2004. That is our leading decision in this jurisdiction. The High Court of Australia last year, 2019, did have a, a very big and important decision that is discussed or mentioned in the chapter that's exactly on this point. And that is a an issue that construction practitioners have worried about for years. And they all know Boomer and Moore and these sort of old cases on this. It's quite possible, I think. I can't say higher than that because I don't know, unlike the earlier examples, cases that are going up. That's the sort of issue that at some point is going to come before a court and it's going to go up, I would think. You see, I, I, I think this is sort of you know, a critical area for construction practitioners because cost, value, contract, quantum merit, that whole area is, you know... Meat and drink. It's, of course, distorted by the um, construction contract um, adjudication approach because one has to have certain requirements met that try to make them fit in with all of those things. So I suspect in construction, that's going to be not just interesting, but probably also involve the dispute resolution element being added into it as well. Yeah, that sounds right. And well, beyond that, I'm not sure at the moment. It's one of those areas where intermittently we get explosions of growth of cases where suddenly something becomes important and someone might tell you afterwards that they were able to predict that happening but i wouldn't believe them i can't say i'm afraid anything more general than uh, what i've said the contract unjust enrichment yeah. interface is consistently bothersome there will be cases on that and things will move because of it now i mean i i have this theory that um, theory that um, you know things come in and out of vogue and it's quite difficult to, to see why it can't be as simple as someone decides one argues one case and then thinks the point again in another case but it is interesting how there are these clusters or explosions as you say yeah well, uh, i think that's right i mean tort is the most obvious example of that i suppose in the the rise and fall of the general duty of care um and most recently the reversion to um lord hoffman's views rather than, I suppose, those of uh, Lord Kerr or Lady Hale in the Supreme Court. And that really has been seesawing. Um, we may have that in unjust enrichment. I mean, for, uh, I, the reason why I'm not sure we will is because Lord Reed is going to be on the court for a while now. Retirement ages are 75. And I think he has a quite clear idea of what he sees its remit as being. So to the extent there is going to be a um, reversion or a return to roughly the Nichols Court's view of this i think it would be after lord reed had retired i haven't got lord reed's date of birth in front of me but it's certainly right that this was a young court young supreme court before they talked about the retirement age k to 75 yeah. now i'm a strong believer in retirement ages going up from 70 because it's it's too young and um, i'm delighted for example that you know david Lord Lloyd-Jones would be retiring under the 70 rule at some stage in the not-too-distant future. And the fact that he can then stay is, I think, marvellous news for that area of jurisprudence. But the, but the corresponding effect is that with, what, with the exception of uh, Lady Arden, whose departure, who will depart when uh, – because uh, she, she, she was under the 75 regime already – with her exception, um, with the 75 regime, there aren't going to be many vacancies in the near future. Um, and um, – you know, they're 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 an accomplished bunch, but nevertheless, um, change can have been beneficial bits. I don't know whether you're as sad as me, but but when one watches on on YouTube or the Supreme Court 
website-owned channel some of the cases. There are some fine feats of advocacy and judicial intervention, um, which I think are easier now for the advocate now that we're on CVP, because they can only have a go at you one at a time. <laughs> um, but I think I think that the Supreme Court, you know, is going to be a very stable place um, for that reason, and one can give the sort of prediction of the Lord Reed approach continuing for um, some considerable time. I think that's right. The particularly, as you say, they're going to be there for a long time now. It's going to be a court with a name in the way the Bingham Court had a name because there can be a group of judges who will start to jail for a substantial period. I don't know after Lady Arden who is next. It, it might be Lord Hodge. Well, actually, it would be, as you say, Lord Lloyd-Jones. Whether Lord Lloyd-Jones, um, the change in the law is done before he reaches 70, I think is an open question at the moment. I hope that it is changed before he does. He's an excellent judge. But it depends on parliamentary time. Yeah. And, and a very, very, busy. very, very nice man as well. Yes, nicest man in Christendom. They're all nice, he says quickly, for service that says there's no misunderstanding. I won't say who, but if anyone's bored, then they can look on the Supreme Court website and see the argument in Triple Point, where one or two of the judges and I had a couple of moments. Um, so, uh, um, which. Uh, Did you win, all... Paul? No. <laughs> oh, terrible decision. No, 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 no. I mean, I, I've given a couple of webinars or videos where I've recited the facts, recited the facts calmly. Um, I have to say it was a very enjoyable experience. But um, what was interesting for me was that, you know, I have been contemporaries with and done cases against um, um, the judges who were some of the judges who were deciding the cases. And um, you could see that there was a real interest in them as to what the right answer was and you know when when you're sort of queuing up um lord leggett um lord burrows and lord sales to answer their questions you're thinking <laughs> deep breaths here we go it is uh, yeah that's a good court no no but um well we had we had lady arden brilliant obviously um L lord burrows lord leggett Lord Hodge and Lord Sale. So you know, we were, we were. That's the order the judgments came in. Um, there's nothing like appearing in front of brains like that, win or lose. Well, on that cheerful note, having mentioned the lose, I'll say thank you very much. Thank you, obviously, for the marvellous chapter. Um, I feel slightly as if I've uh, uh, inserted myself into the Wilmot Smith family business, but it's been uh, <laughs> uh, family shop, as it were. Um, but it's been a great pleasure for me. I should say that doing the book with your father has been for me an absolute delight. I mean, it's been a really special experience for me. Um, and as he said, when I say things like that to him, he looks at me and he says quietly, all that mattered was we got it done, which, <laughs> and we did. And I look forward to being in touch and, and, and thank you very much indeed. Well, congratulations, Paul, it's an excellent book. Thank you, thank you. Thank you.